Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together and we get the perspectives off of three different people. As always, I have with me Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hi. And Lachlan Miller, our expert. Hello. And I'm Joshua Lee, the PK Pastors Kid. How are you all doing? Yeah, well, well, we're recording this just after Easter has wrapped up. Mm. I know this episode comes out a little bit after that, but yes, we've just had Easter, which means for me, I've had uh, lots of time with family and then lots of church services because our church had six different services across the Easter long weekend. Mm. Um, but that was, they were all excellent. They, it was a good celebration, a good reminder of Jesus' death and then a good celebration of his resurrection. Yes. And so then chuck on some family time and I've had a really lovely long weekend. Yeah, no, I that's how I am. Good. Morgan? I am freezing because I'm in Melbourne and it's Arctic conditions here. Um, but I had a pretty chill weekend. Nice to just have some time at home and mm. not do a lot. Went to a really good church service that was really full. Um, mm. Did some really good um, worship and good conversation. So it's a nice weekend. Nice. Oh, good. Yeah. Josh, how about you? Doing well, doing well. As like Lachlan said, it was filled with um, church services. We had our Good Friday, Passover meal the next day, then Easter Sunday. So um, just running around doing all, all, all of those, getting it all prepared um, and prepped for uh, for all that. And because I actually preached over the entire week, weekend and interspersed that with family time. So it was really nice. It was really good. Um, had many people come up to me and say they really enjoyed like the different messages that I, I gave and they really appreciated, um, I don't know, the the effort of going into for, for them. So, you know, it was really, for me, it was really doing it for, for you know, like my congregation there so um it was really nice to see that they really got a lot out of that that time there but doing well doing well so if you haven't heard already, we plug it each week, but we're going to plug it again. We've got a Patreon. So if you want to go support us financially, hop over to Patreon and uh, you can see all the details there. You get a bit of extra stuff there, uh, early episodes and extra long episodes and things like that. So if you're interested in that and supporting us financially, head over to Patreon. Lachlan, what are we reading today? We're reading Genesis chapters 15 through to 17. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, chapters 15 to 17. These chapters show Abram concerned that he is still childless, and despite God's many assurances that he will have an heir, Abram and Sarai seek to solve this by having Sarai's maidservant, Hagar, bear a child on her behalf. God appears before Abram, establishing the covenant of circumcision with him, but making it clear that it is Sarai's child who will inherit this covenant, not Hagar's child. So last episode we looked at the core of Abram mm-hmm. and we saw God sort of calling on Abram and picking up getting him to sort of pick up his life and his family and then sort of travel. And there's lots of different events that sort of happen along that journey uh, as he travels to the land of Canaan. Um, stuff sort of happens, famine, and then Abram sort of doesn't uphold that call uh, for a lack of a better way of like sort of going into great detail. Um, they end up in Egypt for a little bit and then um, sort of there's walls and everything that break out and uh, Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, uh, does get captured and then 300 men sort of appear 
well, don't appear. They've always been with Abram, but they they then go and they then go and sort of rescue Lot. So there's sort of a lot that sort of happens with the call of Abram on Abram's life, just the uprooting of it all, and then um, these battles that we see, and we're slowly getting towards um, Abram's shift into the into the person that we sort of today know him as Abraham, but we're not quite there yet. No, he's still Abram for another two chapters. And I'm glad that you went ahead and explained what happened last episode because the first two words of chapter 15 are after this. And so after this interaction with Melchizedek, after the blessing that Melchizedek bestows upon Abram, after kind of one of the spiritual highs of Abraham's life, because we see that there's lots of lows and highs, and we're going to hit a pretty low one in chapter 16. After this high the Lord again appears before Abram and reaffirms the covenant. It's always fun because it starts with, as it always does when God or um, an angel of the Lord or, or something to that description um, always visits someone, so do not be afraid. <laughs> I love <laughs> that that's always the first thought. Do not be afraid. And even at the very beginning, you know, this is the beginning of the book, it's starting with do not be afraid. Uh, at least in my version it's saying do not be afraid. Mm. But I also like like how it's continuing with, with God's promise of, of like I will protect you, hmm. and I will reward you. God's still upholding this like thing, even even though it's it may seem like God's f- like fulfilling promise of having many uh, descendants, um, many sons and daughters is not there yet. He will still reward Abram, you know, for his service to God here, and it's like reiterated each time, sort of God visits or speaks to Abram. But you've got to appreciate Abram's bravery. Mm. Like God appears here and uh, promises to continue protecting Abram, continue rewarding him. And Abram goes, yeah, great, but I still don't have a son. Mm. At the moment, just one of my servants is going to inherit everything I own because I have no offspring. Like what's the go with that God? Like just just the bravery to stand before God and complain. I'm always impressed is the wrong word, but there's just something about it that goes, oh, wow, like look at this relationship that is going on here. Yeah, it's that like, sort of like two-way sort of conversation that's happening. Not to the point where like Abraham's like almost like negatively questioning, but still, but it, it's nagging, that question is nagging him at the back of, mm. the, of his mind. And he's like wanting to go into this dialogue with God of like, well, what about my heir? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's been 10 years that he's been in the promised land of Canaan. So it's been 10 years since God has promised, I'm going to make you a great nation. Mm. And yet he's sitting there still not having an heir, but God has a lot of grace for this question that Abram has and literally tells him to look up at the stars, count them if you can. That is how many your offspring will be. I always love that visual imagery of, of that. Um, Cause we can do it today. Like we, like, you know, that's something that we can just mm. walk out at night, look up at the sky and we can sort of just see that wonder of, of what maybe Abram would have, would have felt. Cause it's always sort of like, at least for me, like like amazing to see the stars just sort of being twinkling in the night sky, but to have that sort of like God sort of saying to you, you know, this will be as many, as many as stars as you can count will be as many as descendants that you will have. I highlighted the um, number of stars bit because I, yeah, like Josh, I just think it's cool to imagine. I can just imagine there with like a tally, like one, two, three, four. Like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> 
Yeah, do you think he started trying to count them and then went, okay, I'm just going to trust God? Yeah, he's probably like, oh, did I count that one or did I get that one already? Like, it would have been tough. Mm. And I also think I can kind of relate to what Josh was saying before about the promise and then, like, you question it. You do question it no matter what promise you've been given. Like, I feel Mm. like I do that still. So I find that really relatable. Like, yeah, I trust you, but why is this happening? Mm. Then still doing what you've been ordered to do, like count the stars or, like, it's still there. Mm. So. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. Which is one of the great things about the human characters of the Bible is you read their stories and you go, wow, I could see myself in that. Mm. Like I could see how real and relatable this person is. Yeah, they may have lived, what, 4,000 years ago for Abram Mm. compared to us, but he's a human through and through and his responses I could see myself within. Yeah, and I feel like he just like thrives a little bit off the reassurance, which a lot of us need. Mm. So. He constantly needs those reminders of the promise, which, yeah, that's so normal. Oh, 100%. And, like, you know, like, you know, what you're saying, Morgan, especially because it's been 10 years. I would, yeah. I would, I would need, I would need reassurance after 10 years. <laughs> Absolutely. And then we hit one of the most famous lines in the Bible, um, which is Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. I say one of the most famous lines of the Bible, potentially not in a general sense, Mm. but in a biblical sense, this is one of the most quoted bits of the entire Bible once we hit the New Testament. So the Lord is saying that Abram is righteous because of his faith. Mm -hmm. I love this idea and I had this highlighted quite a while ago, um, linked to the verse in Ephesians, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Mm -hmm. And I might be an unpopular opinion, but I look at this (laughs) the other way as well. Like I found myself, God had lots of grace in me, but I also had grace in like how long it was taking, questioning why it was like a both ways kind of thing for me, the grace. And I loved that verse when I was starting getting into faith and looking into things. I really liked the idea of faith, um, grace by grace through faith. Mm. It was something that constantly came up. Which is amazing thing about the character of God is that he is gracious. Yeah. Someone like Abram can be like, hey, God, your promise isn't fulfilled yet. And he graciously walks him outside and says, look at the stars. Mm. Like it is only by God's grace that he offers us the ability to be right with him. We know that's via the sacrifice of Jesus. But here it's just as simple as faith. Just having faith that God will fulfill these promises was enough for God to graciously bestow righteousness upon Abram. Yeah, and I had a little bit of a power thing where I was like, I'm not going to give you all the power. Like, I'm going to give you grace too, God. Like, it works <laughs> two ways. <laughs> mm, interesting. <laughs> Unpopular opinion. Was there a reason he waited so long to fulfill these promises? Was he, like, testing him and testing his character or why did he wait so long? Well, I, I was actually going to bring this up a little bit later. Um, when they start talking about for 400 years your ancestors will be enslaved in Egypt, I think what we begin to see is that God has such a different time frame than us. And so Abram was thinking, hey, all these promises that God is offering to me, they should happen soon. Mm. They should happen within the next five, ten years, and I should have everything God has promised. And yet later on in chapter 15, we see that God is operating on a time frame of hundreds of years. And so I think all we see here is that God has a very different time frame than us. 
I also think when you look at people that have gotten things like fame, stature, sort of um, like positions of power quite like quickly, um, uh, like a lot of the time, but not all the time, but a lot of the time, you know, that arrogance can sort of like really seep in to that to their character. Um, whereas you see those that have like gone through like either hardships or it's been a long struggle or the, the there's been a lot of time or they've got they've risen to either power or fame like a lot later in life there's this like humbleness that they have about them i think god sort of doesn't want us to rush into things because we can sort of trip and fall on the way um it's through experience and trusting in, in trusting in him that we will be we will become humbled so that when we do find this promise or power or position that we can do it fully to the best of our ability with with this walk with God. And this this discussion just reminds me of a verse from 2 Peter chapter 3, which says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I think the Apostle Peter here is just trying to convey that like we see in the Abraham story, that God operates on a different time frame. Like a day for us is like a thousand years for the Lord or a thousand years for the Lord is like a day. Like we don't know how he views history and what he wants, but his promises will be fulfilled. We shouldn't say that they are slowing being fulfilled. They're just in a different time frame than sometimes we expect. So this whole cutting animals in half was, to my understanding, a cultural custom of the time mm-hmm. of if I if I'm getting this correct, if you you cut the animal in half and you put it like to one like to, to either side and then you the two people that were making an agreement walked through the two two halves. Um, this was to sort of show like a sort of like a handshake agreement of saying that if I break this agreement bond whatever it is. I will. Um, I can be cut down just like these animals, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a self curse. It's saying if I break this agreement we've just made, may I be killed and cut in half like these animals? Mm. And yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. So we have um, excavations in Mari, which was an ancient Semitic city in kind of modern day Syria. They found a bunch of texts, and in those texts they found explanation of this custom that we see here in Genesis, which is exactly that, is it's a self-curse. It's saying I will uphold this agreement to such a standard that if I do not, may I be cut down and cut in half like these animals. But what's particularly interesting about this one is that while Abram is the one who sets it all up and cuts the animals in half, God then sends him to sleep and... Abram never walks through the cut animals. Only Yahweh walks between them. Mm. And so Yahweh is saying, regardless of what you do, Abram, I will uphold this covenant on threat of death. And we know that God can't die. And so he's he's giving us his guarantee. He's like, I will fulfill these things to you or else may it be that I die. I just, if I was Abram, I would just be questioning like, like these challenges, like first count the stars, then find a three-year-old goat. Like I'd be thinking like, what next? Like what else do you need me to do? Like why a three-year-old goat? Like it could be two years. Like it's so specific. It's like challenges and like things he has to get through. 
I don't know whether that bit would have been a challenge at all. Like we know that Abram had huge flocks of animals and so he would have very, very easily come across all these animals he was asked to collect. As for why three-year-olds, I don't really know. I just know that it's an adult by then. And so I don't know why the exact three-year age, but I don't think he would have seen Mm. this as a challenge necessarily, especially given the culture he grew up in. He knew what this was signifying. He knew that this was just the way that anyone would make an agreement. If you wanted to make an agreement with someone, this is literally what you would do with anyone, except what is interesting, again, is that Abram doesn't walk through the animals to call a curse upon himself if he doesn't keep up his end. Only God walks through the animals. Why is that? Because God is saying that regardless of what you do, Abram, I will uphold these promises. I think God realises that human beings are faulty and will make mistakes. Um, And so even though he's already declared Abram is righteous because of his faith, he's not prepared to put the promises on Abram's life with conditions. Like God is saying, these things will happen. I guarantee it. I make that promise. And Abram, it almost doesn't matter what you do because I swear by myself and my existence that I will do these things for you. And that way God gets to make a promise without worrying Mm -hmm. about the human sinfulness or mistakes that could risk the promises. I do like um, Abram's commitment to to sort of this this custom and trying to trying to create this promise with the Lord because he's saying that um he was chasing away the vultures and stuff yeah birds of prey birds of prey and any anything that would try and disturb it so he's so he's not like you know like oh well the vultures getting the goat like well that's fine there's other animals like he's shooing everything away because he's like really committed to this. Mm. Uh, to this promise sort of being um, or a promise agreement covenant being made. Yeah. And I want to suggest that those birds of prey are actually an acted parable. So birds of prey are an evil omen. Mm. Like if they were to appear in the middle of this covenant ceremony, that would normally be seen as a very, very negative thing that was occurring right now. Instead, I think what happens the very next thing in the passage is Abram has a dream where it's revealed that his descendants will... uh, be enslaved and that slavery is basically an opposition to the fulfillment of these promises Mm. so the birds of prey almost represent egypt who are opposing this covenant but ultimately like they are shooed away egypt will also be shooed away so that abram's descendants can inherit the land they are promised i was gonna say because isn't is that foreshadowing yeah absolutely people being enslaved into egypt i don't even think it's just foreshadowing i think it literally just says it (laughs) it's just like straight up verse 14 i'll punish the nation that they serve as slaves like it it says in pretty much black and white ink that Egypt is going to be enslaved for 400 years. Mm. And, it, you know, we fast forward to the Exodus story. What do we see? Like, you know, the Egyptians getting punished. Yeah, literally. And so it's less of a subtle foreshadowing and more of a blatant, hey, this is going to happen to your descendants, but that's okay. It's part of the plan. In verse 13, where it says that your offspring will be so sojourners, can I ask what that is? Do you know what sojourners yes. means? Um, a sojourner is a, a foreigner dwelling in a place is the, the most simple way of putting it. So they're, okay. they're foreigners dwelling in Egypt. They'll be sojourning in Egypt. What are the Amorites? So the Amorites are one of the main population groups in the land of Canaan. So they're one of the Canaanite tribes that mm. live in this area. I always think this verse is particularly interesting 
it's particularly interesting because when people hit the book of Joshua and Israel invades the land of Canaan and seems to wipe them all out, people are like, what the heck, God? That's not okay. Like, <laughs> why, why are you wiping out a whole people group? And yet here we have 400 years earlier, God saying, I'm not yet prepared to wipe them out because their sins are not bad enough yet. But a time is coming when they will need judgment for their actions. And until they reach that point, I'm not going to judge them. Like, Abram, I could give you this whole land right now if I wanted to, but it's not yet the right time to kick out or destroy the people currently inhabiting this land. But that time is coming. So I think it's fair to say that chapter 15 is another high point in the life of Abram, but I'm going to suggest that we now hit chapter 16 where we go to a low point. It's interesting that you said like low point because I've never really thought of it and and especially reading it before, never necessarily thought of it as a low point, just more of a this happened point, if that makes sense. But I guess as we as we get through it, yeah, it's it's not quite um, having that faith that God's going to provide and like a like a proper air mm. here. It's as I mean, like you know, let's let's explain it like. Sarai is is concerned about that she can't bear children and mm-hmm. offers up a solution. And I think um, without sort of, you know, really explaining it, this solution isn't a solution from God. No, this is a purely human solution to the problem of Abram having no children. Now, I wonder if like, you know, if it was like influenced of like, well, you know, maybe Sarai saying like th- thinking and and maybe then then why Abraham sort of like agrees is like, oh, well, maybe this is within God's plan. Like because he did say that we're going to have descendants or maybe this is how we're, we're going to have descendants here, you know, in terms of that like thought process of, of why. But as we can see, so and going into the, the story, Sarai comes up with the idea of, well, let one of her Egyptian uh, servants, as it says, Hagar, uh, be the surrogate or the com- concubine to be the um, to bear uh, Abram's child, mm-hmm. so that the um, line can continue on. Which again is a purely human solution. God, in the previous chapter, has said, "On pain of death, I will make sure that your this promise is fulfilled." that you will have many, many descendants more than the stars in the sky. That is what God has said in the previous chapter. And here, rather than trusting in that promise, the human characters take actions to try and ensure it of mm. their own volition. Well, and, and especially because in um, verse 2, saying the Lord has prevented me from having children. So that trust has gone out the window because mm-hmm. we're, bla- we're now blaming God Yahweh for not being able to have children, which is completely opposite to what he's promising. Mm. And you got to remember to Abram, this suggestion by his wife isn't a crazy idea. No. I'm sure if we were to take a modern day marriage and go, let's introduce a third party for the husband to sleep with and have a kid, many eyebrows would be raised, particularly in Christian circles. But this was a pretty normal custom of the day is that a married woman could give her maid to her husband if she couldn't have children. And that child was regarded as the child of the wife. And so this is pretty normal according to social customs, but God often repudiates social customs would be my comment when we Mm. see him act throughout history. And we do see that Hagar's status within Abram's household increases. Like she is now called a wife 
yeah, in verse three, gave her to her husband to be his wife. And so she was still not on the level of Sarai in terms of power dynamic within the household, but she's definitely a lot higher up than she used to be. Does that mean Abram has two wives? Yes, he does now. Correct. Because I've got a friend who's Muslim and in their culture, it's so normal for them to have two wives still. Mm -hmm. Is that, it's obviously not really known in Christian life these days. Like I've not seen it, but I don't really know where I'm going with this. I just want to like explore it a bit more. (laughs) I think there's a question you're leading towards that you just need to ask. I assume you're leading up to the question of, is having multiple wives okay? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Is having multiple wives okay? As a Christian. Mm. I think the taking of multiple wives is never encouraged in the Bible. I think we see the model for marriage in Genesis 2.24, where it is just Adam and Eve, the two of them. Every time in the Bible when multiple wives are taken, it is the cause of a lot of conflict. So this story, we're going to see a lot of conflict between Hagar and Sarai. Um, The story of Solomon, King Solomon, with his hundreds of wives, like that is a story of conflict and a man who can't properly follow God because of the conflict within his own household. In the law of God, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, it explicitly states that the king of Israel is not allowed to have multiple wives. The moral state of Israel is often determined by how well or how poorly the king rules over them. And so... Again, they, they are held to this very high ideal standard, which is only one wife. And so to, in answer to your question, I think the Bible never encourages taking multiple wives and always views it as a negative thing, which again is why I think this is another low point in the life of Abram. And unfortunately, it's, it's been a bit of a disturbance in the, in the household. Like Sarai now is sort of like upset and mm-hmm. drives even that was her idea even though it was her idea <laughs> it's now sort of unfortunately backfired and now you know she's driving Hagar out mm-hmm. out into out into in, into the wilderness um and away and away from it all but i do like how an angel of the lord does go to Hagar mm. and like saying it's not your fault yeah. for, um, for this. You were just sort of doing as you were told and, and, and being a good servant and just going along with, going along with it. Like, you know, um, so I do like that, as we keep saying, like, you know, the grace of God, mm-hmm. even in these situations where it gets a bit messy and muddy uh, with it all and, you know, people's, um, we can question people's decisions. Um, God's still showing grace to mm-hmm. those that get caught up in it all. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to just pause briefly on this angel of the Lord. So whenever the angel of the Lord appears in scripture, we're meant to perceive that whatever words comes out of his mouth are the words of God. Because of this, there's a fair amount of biblical scholars who want to argue that the angel of the Lord is kind of the pre-incarnate Christ. Like this is, it actually is God. It's not just an angel speaking on behalf of God. It actually is God. I think it's a little hard to argue that. I don't think you have to believe that. Mm. But regardless, whenever we see the angel of the Lord, the words being spoken are the words of Yahweh. Yes, definitely. You know, and that's, as we keep saying, like, that's the main point. We can get so hung up on these different little details and getting them right and whether or not it's wrong. but But the overarching point still remains the same. This is of God. 
we, we tend to, as humans, think that the timeline that we have and God's timeline are like the same when they can be completely different. And this goes back to our conversation of like being in the waiting and like God taking his time with things, um, you know, so often, you know, just like Sarai, we're, we can become quite impatient. Mm. And so we think mm. we're helping God out by going, oh, no, I, I've got this. I can do this, Lord, this, you know. And in this scenario, unfortunately, it was the complete opposite of what of what God wanted, um, and so I guess you know as as sort of like a little a little a little lesson as we're sort of getting through the ha- halfway um, through this uh, chunk of chapters is like you know sometimes when we think that when we're helping out God it's not and that we still got to trust His timeline not mm. our timeline. Yep, that thought's particularly important because what we see in the story of Hagar is potential roadblocks to the promises of Abraham being fulfilled. Mm. Like you suddenly have Ishmael who comes along and we'll see in chapter 17 that Abram by this point has just already accepted that Ishmael is going to be the, the fulfillment of the promises for him. But God appears to Hagar and out of grace says that Ishmael will become a great nation himself, but then says he's going to live in his in hostility to his brothers. In mm. other words, the descendants of Ishmael are going to be a thorn in the side of the promised line for the rest of existence. Hmm. And so, for instance, it's commonly believed that um, Ishmael is the ancestor to the Arab nation, and we know that the Arabs and the Jews have historically not gotten on at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even just in the book of Genesis, we know that Joseph was sold to Ishmaelites. It is a group Mm. of travelling Ishmaelites who take Joseph to Egypt and so we see that he does live in hostility towards his brothers. Even the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac is pretty apparent once Isaac arrives on the scene. Like there's already conflict within the um, just the immediate Sarai, Abraham and um, Hagar mm-hmm. like household. There's, there's conflict that then arises there and so it's sort of like it then will now unfortunately continue. Yes, the conflict will continue because... Abram tried a very human way of attaining these promises. Mm. Do we know what the kind of family dynamic would have been? Like would Hagar have been in the child's life as well or does, is it kind of like a surrogate, like the baby's handed over? From the ancient text we have, the understanding would be that the child would be perceived as the child of the original wife, so Sarai, but the impression we get from the rest of Genesis is that Sarai is so unhappy with this situation and the way that it has developed is that she never takes ownership for Ishmael and instead Ishmael is only ever raised by Hagar. They become a pair that, like, Hagar raises Ishmael, even when a few chapters later they will leave the family of Abram forever, it's still Hagar leaves with Ishmael. So I think it's very fair to say that Hagar just raised her own son, even though according to the, the customs that we know from the ancient world, it probably shouldn't necessarily have been like that. I kind of feel so sorry for Sarai. I feel really sorry for her. <laughs> fair. Things are going to get better for her is all I'm going to say, but yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you feel sorry for her. You feel so- I mean, like a, a, a lot of people here, like Sarai, Hagar, like, you know, everyone's trying and and try- and thinking that they're, they're doing the right thing here. Hmm. And you can't blame them for trying to do the right thing, but you know, we can always look back on the consequences of actions. Uh, but at the time, 
they just thought they were doing 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 the right thing, and they just mm. wanted they they just so mm. wanted this this heir this th- these descendants to happen, the line of Abram to continue on. It's all just messy. Yes, yes, it is very very messy. And then Hagar names a bunch of things, right? She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Mm. You are the God who sees me, which is why she then calls the location Beer Lahay Roy. I probably butchered that if you're actually an expert at how to pronounce that. Uh, record yourself saying it properly and send it into <laughs> us. Um, but that translates to the well of the one who sees me. And so she's saying that God saw her, God had grace on her and perceived her and looks after her. So when, yeah, when she says that God sees me, it means God cares for me. And then the name Ishmael is God has heard me. And so all of these names that go on is about a God who intervenes, a God who perceives and acts. Would this have kind of been like a big deal for Hagar being a servant? Like, because I'm assuming servants wouldn't have been treated like amazingly and would it have been kind of a big honour for her to have done this? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a a well-formed answer Um, apart from it's definitely a big honour because, as I said before, her status within the family unit has gone up immensely she's now Mm. considered a wife which is far far higher in the social strata than the maidservant to the wife and so yes her her lot in life has definitely increased a fair bit but we often see god coming to the lowest of the lows and those are the people he works through so i don't think we should be surprised knowing the character of god that he meets this once slave in the desert as she tries to go back to egypt her homeland and stops her and turns her back around and says things are going to work out. Yeah, it's hard to say because I think, you know, sometimes either, like we can think either servants as like, being like lowest of the lows or you could have like really like befriended servants. But I think mm. that the, as Lockie said, it's it's the status that changes. Like mm. even if you were a servant that was really good friends with um, whoever they were, they were serving and um, still had a pretty good life. Like um, still got quite a lot out of it. The status would still always remain like vastly different. Mm. Yeah. So as we hit chapter seventeen, we have a thirteen-year time jump. Because Abram is now 99 years old, which means Ishmael is 13 years old. So just so we're aware, 13 years has passed between this sentence and our previous sentence. And I think what has happened in these 13 years, just to quickly finish my thought, is that Sarai has lost all hope of motherhood. So we see that in chapter 18, that she's totally given up. And we also see here in chapter 17, verse 18, that Abram has just accepted that Ishmael is the heir God has promised. Like he's he's at the point in life where he's gone, I'm now 99 years old. I've been in this land for, what, 20-something years by this point. Ishmael must be the one God promised. I mean, and it's fair enough, like these, coming to these conclusions, because, and you don't blame him because what was it before we saw a 10-year jump now we're seeing another 13-year jump so what that's now like at least 23 years that have gone by and still nothing has happened (laughs) yes in in regards to a a child being born um for Sarai for for Sarai um obviously a lot has happened Mm -hmm. a lot of events have happened but in terms of like specifically God's promise yeah he's playing the long game here Mm. Why the name change from Abram to Abraham? Yeah, great question. 
So the name Abram means exalted father. Now, some scholars think it means I have an exalted father, whereas the name Abraham means father of a multitude. And so what God does in renaming Abram is he takes the focus off Abram's ancestors by saying that Abram has a great father to to really pointing forward to the fact that Abram or Abraham now is going to be the father of a multitude of people. So this means every single time someone talks to Abraham, every time they use his name, he is reminded of God's promise that he is going to be the father of a multitude of people. And so there's mm-hmm. something really special about the idea that literally every time someone talks to him and uses his name, it's a reminder that he's going to be the father of a great nation like God promised. And at first, I think his household might have found that a weird thing to be calling him. Like they suddenly are calling their master who has one kid. Ah, hi, father of a multitude, as he's sitting there with his one son, Ishmael. But it's a constant reminder. Like again, he's he's confirming this covenant with Abraham now. Yeah, we could finally say Abraham. Abraham. We've been saying it for the past several episodes, regardless, but now we can fairly say it because like like we've seen like again and again, like I like you know I will give you this promise. I there was this covenant, and God, like we said at the start, like God's giving this reassurance Mm. each, each time of like this this will happen. Just trust trust in it like he's 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 me sort of saying again like i i i'm promising this this to happen like before we saw like that's like more sort of ceremonial thing with the cutting of the the animals in half now it's a name change Mm -hmm. it's it's gonna happen we're getting so close to it but i do like a like just at the start of 17 abraham falling face down onto the ground now when i first read that i just imagined him just going bam into the (laughs) ground But upon actually thinking about it, like him like falling, like falling to the ground in sort of reverence, in sort of respect for God. Like I, I, I just like that immediate sort of like, no, not thinking about it because you know, this is God and this is the the respect I need to show. Mm. Like, you know, regardless of the amount of times God's spoken to Abraham, he will show, he's still showing him the same amount of respect. Even at 99. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy for a 99-year-old man to fall face down. Well, actually, it's probably easy from the fall face down. Harder for them to then get yeah, up and get have up. a conversation. So we've just had Abraham's name changed, Abraham, a- Abram to Abraham. Sarai's name now changes to Sarah. Mm. Is that because God has told as as um, made that name change or is it just a translation thing? No, no, so this is... In the same way that Abram is given a new name, Abraham, Sarai is now given the new name, Sarah. Now, the interesting thing about Sarah is that both names mean princess. Mm-hmm. But I think it's to be a reminder that we see twice in this chapter that it is promised that kings will come from Abraham's line. And so I think the idea of Sarah's name mean, meaning princess is just a constant reminder whenever anyone talks to her or uses her name, Sarah, that yes, like I will have children who will be kings, who will be royalty, because I myself, my name means princess. And then they're told that they are going to have a son via Sarah. Like that is the way this promise is meant to play out. And Abraham laughs at that fact <laughs> and it is from that action that Isaac receives his name when he eventually comes along in a few chapters' time because the name Isaac means he laughs. 
So Isaac's name forever will be a reminder to Abraham and to Sarah that when God told them that they were going to have a son, their response to God's promise was to laugh at him. (laughs) And those are the names of significance in this chapter. And I feel like we're dancing around the point of this chapter. We we are, we are, we are. And like just before we we get to that, I, I think all of us would would some like at that point with so much time passed, with them being so old with their age, I would maybe laugh in disbelief as well. Like, <laughs> yeah, fair. You know, like I don't, I don't think you know that's like out of out of character for for humans to sort of think like to. To go, oh, okay, God, yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, verse 17, Abraham sums it up really well. Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Mm. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Like, it's a pretty laughable thing. Mm. But God is being very clear that is, no, it's through the two of you. It is not just Abraham's line that matters here. It is Abraham and Sarah. It is to the two of you that my promises will come. And so... You may have a son now in Ishmael, but that is not the promised child. And we get to circumcision. So let's yeah. talk about circumcision. <laughs> yeah, we've been <laughs> avoiding it for a while now. <laughs> well, let's maybe just explain what the text is saying here before we sort of maybe talk about circumcision. The response to to uh, obeying the terms of the covenant, mm-hmm. God is instructing uh, Abraham to circumcise the the males in his household. Yep, all the men in his household, which we know from last episode included at least 318 fighting men. Yes. Like there's a lot of people in this household. It's not just Abraham and Ishmael. Um, now, did Abraham do all that work? Anyway, uh, I don't want to think about it, but <laughs> the, this is this is the mark of the covenant. This is sort of the, the pr- proving it. The, is this the proof? Like... Mm. It's a physical sign of the covenant. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's saying there needs to be some sort of distinguishing mark upon you and he has chosen circumcision as the sign of that covenant. Now, it's probably important to point out that circumcision, this is not the invention of it here in Genesis 17. We actually Um. have tomb scenes from Egyptian tombs from the old kingdom of Egypt that depict this practice for those who wanted to serve in an Egyptian temple, like it was a purity ritual in Egypt. We know that there are other nations who despised the Philistines because they didn't practice circumcision. Mm. And so this was a normal-ish practice in the ancient world, but God has taken it and invested it with a new significance and makes it the mark of Israel's covenant status. And I think it's a good symbol for his purposes because we talked about in chapter 15 that that was a kind of a self-cursing oath of cutting the animals in half and walking through and saying, if I break this, may I also die like these animals? Circumcision is actually similar. It's saying, if I break this covenant, may I also be cut off and thrown aside just like the foreskin. Mm. So we can see that in verse 14 quite clearly is that's what circumcision represents is anyone who does not follow the terms of this covenant, may they be cut off from the people. And so that is what it's meant to represent because in that physical action, you see what would become of you if you don't follow this covenant. I guess what I want to know and ask is where Christianity stands with circumcision today So I work in a paediatric hospital and we have 
a specific circumcision clinic once a fortnight and it's always full, the lists are full. And we have parents um, that actually protest against it in the hospital. Wow. Um, and I guess, yeah, I just want to know where it stands today in faith. Yeah, it's uh, actually a very simple question, um, thankfully. And so Acts 15, we have the Council of Jerusalem. Um, all the early Christians gathered together, almost exclusively Jews, which means almost everyone in attendance of this early church council was circumcised. And they went, hey, the gospel is going out and reaching all these nations of uncircumcised people. Do we need to circumcise them for them to be Christians? And after a long discussion, this council of early Christians, which includes all the apostles, they decide that no, this is not a condition we will put upon those hearing the gospel for the first time. And so the Christian view of circumcision is that it is not essential or necessary to be part of God's community. So why do so many people still do it today, do you think? I assume it's an an entrenched traditional thing would be my assumption there. Mm. I don't know any of the medical literature of circumcision apart from what it means in the Bible, so I can't speak to anything else apart from. I assume there's just a strong culture of... If your father was circumcised, he potentially wanted his son to be too, and it's just a cultural thing that has worked its way through history, even though the early Christian church made it quite clear that it was no longer a condition needed. Now, this was, was this a condition that was no longer needed that was ordained by God? Yes. Yeah. Because we see the council of Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit working amongst the people to convey good and true things. Hmm. Like this was a council of the early Christians where every person there was infused with the Holy Spirit trying to decide, hey, the Gentiles are here in the gospel. What Jewish conditions do we need to put upon people receiving the gospel? Mm. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the powerful testimony of Paul and the powerful testimony of Peter, they all agreed that we need to minimize the Jewish conditions because this is bigger than Judaism. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And I guess sort of to go to the point of like, you know, why is the practice still done today? Well, I think, well, one, it's still heavily a uh, Jewish thing that uh, custom mm. and practice that that happens. So you will find that, you know, um, Jewish people, people of Jewish faith will still will still do it. But then as, as Lockie said, it's entrenched within culture, but I think it's entrenched because one from like a from a faith background, either Christian or uh, or Jewish or whichever, you know, if, if any other uh, religious group also practices it. Um, but I think also, you know, you have differing opinions, medically speaking, where you have one research paper that says it's it's good to do another research paper that says it's not. And so I think culturally from a medical point of view as well, that's now be, that's also entrenched as, as mm. in it as well and the debates that, that happen there. So I think, yeah, it's just lots of factors of why it's still a thing today. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm against it because I think it's horrible and I've heard like the kids screaming and it just seems inhumane and not very nice and lots of parents say, oh, they won't remember it though, but I just think, I don't know, I'm not a parent, but I couldn't inflict any unnecessary pain on my child for anything. Mm. So I find it a bit of a hard concept to get my head around. But then again, I do respect the people who want to do it. I think it's a bit of a fine line. I don't know. That's all right. That's okay. How does that 
make you view this story then? So we've said in the modern era, at least religiously as Christians, it's not necessary, but Mm. God makes it a necessary part of his covenant for Abram's descendants, for all of them. Like this will go forward to the New Testament. We literally have Jesus being circumcised as a child in the New Testament. And so this is a tradition that will go on for a long, long time. Does it change your view or like what is your view here of God commanding it of Abraham? I just think it's like unnecessary. Like they could have been something different they could have done. This is something that's hard to prove. Like it seems um, there's like no dignity in having to prove it to get that part of your body out or like, I don't know, I just there could have been something different, like a burn mark on the arm or a scar on the chest or something different. I just think why this? And I'm not sure if it's like a manlyhood thing or that kind of level of why it was that that was chosen, but I just don't rate it, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think circumcision is just exceptionally symbolic. So I've already talked mm. about the idea of it being a self-curse of maybe throwing off if I don't follow the conditions of the covenant. But the fact that it is what is being cut there is the male reproductive organ, which is what the promises to Abraham are based around. I think it's symbolic on many, many levels. And so we don't know why God does things, but this Mm. is the sign that he chose. Was there like a female version of this covenant that they had to agree to? Or was it just purely males only? Just males only in the biblical story. Because like you just imagine like what would they have wanted like women to do? Like I just don't. Yeah, no, no. There's no female circumcision in scripture, just to Mm. be very clear, because there are cultures that practice a thing like that but mm. they're absolutely not in the Bible. It's a bit of a weird one when we think of it in our, like with with all the knowledge of, of today in our modern modern times, it's a hard one to wrap our heads around think, thinking about it and one that we just don't think about like ever. Like, you know, this pops up in the Bible uh, and then it will like, it, it's a practice that continues and we'll see it sort of like pop up here, here and now uh, as we go through the entire Bible. But... Um, it's definitely one that we sort of, it's not a common thing that we stop and ponder about, mm. um, if that if that makes sense. I don't really want to end this chapter talking about circumcision, so I just want to loop us back around for a moment to say that while God here gives a brand new sign of the covenant to Abraham, this chapter is also significant because we've seen Abraham renamed and we've seen God explicitly say it is through Sarah that these promises will come. And so we've had a we've had a chapter we've had chapter sixteen of the human solution to the problem of Sarah being barren and childless, but here we have God saying no, I am going to step in within a year of this moment. She will give birth to a son Isaac, and so that is how this story pushes forward the whole narrative as a whole. Is it is through Sarah that's the important bit for the promised child. And so now we can see even more clearly that this whole issue and interaction with Hagar and Ishmael was not the right thing to do. Yeah. We've sort of, we've gone from like an up down to a bit of a low and we're now back onto that rise up again. Yes. I have two takeaways from today. The first is how relatable Abraham is as a character. 
Now, we talked about this earlier on in the episode of just his responses to situations, you can see the humanity in it. And that's actually one of the reasons we're studying Abraham at youth this term is we get to see someone having highs and lows in their walk with God and just having responses that often make sense to us Mm -hmm. as we see someone journey with their God and trying to figure out life and how the promises work in their life. And so I just, I'm appreciating Abraham as a character because of how realistic he seems. And then my other takeaway is to bring us back to the idea of Abraham having faith and that being credited to him as righteousness. Because mm. here we see the Christian gospel. We see that salvation and relationship with the God of the universe has always been via faith. And that is what we here today believe. Mm. And that's always something worth coming back to because God didn't change his method or thoughts. It's always been the way. For, for me, nothing's too hard to handle for God. Like, you know, despite us not thinking that our our timeline is different to uh, God's timeline or thinking that it actually, sorry, I should say it matches up. And like, you know, the, the human condition of like thinking that we need to intervene um, and and help God out. Uh, no, God's got... God's got this. We should trust in him. And and even if it's painful in the waiting, even if it's like gonna take a huge amount of amount of time, we still need to have that that trust that, you know, God's promises will happen in our in our lives and he's got it. You know, it's not that we have it. We we've we have it because God has it, if that makes sense. It's not it's not us alone, it's it's God fully. And we need to sort of hand over the reins to to God, which is a hard thing to thing to do because we like to like have one hand on the rein like oh no god you can take the left one Mm. it's like no 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 hand both of them over to 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 god because he's he's got it and he can handle it when we can't i think my takeaway is really similar to Lockie's after the conversation about the kind of things that go wrong the things that go good for abraham throughout his walk and sometimes we question why we're doing the things we're being kind of guided to do but to just trust in the promise and yeah. So as we wrap up, don't forget that we've got social media. Follow us on social media. Go onto our Instagram, go onto our Facebook, go onto our TikTok and follow us there. You keep up to date with everything that we're doing. Post little shorts, little reels, but also uh, text posts and photos and all that. So go go give us a follow um, over there. And as we said at the start, we've got a Patreon. So if you want to come support us um, in a financial sense, uh, then head over to Patreon and you can get all the details on Patreon over there patrons get um sort of extra content early uh, early releases as well as um extra long uh versions of the podcast so head over to patreon if you're interested there and if there are any sort of like you know questions or any of your takeaway points we've heard our takeaway points and we've asked our our sort of questions but if you've got any uh questions or takeaway points from these chapters of the bible send it to us we want to hear your thoughts on the story of uh abraham and sarah up to up to this point we'd love to hear them so send it our way through social media or uh anywhere you want to sort of just comment uh on 
on the videos or wherever it may be. Um, and also share the podcast with a friend. Share it with someone that with a loved one, with family members, um, maybe your boss. It could be your boss <laughs> at work. You could share it with your boss or just your a social media post or a social media post. Share it around because we'd love the uh, this podcast to spread. But ultimately, we'd love the word of God to also spread through it. Well, how about I just end with a word of prayer, dear Heavenly Father? I thank you that we can gather here today. I thank you for everyone that is able to listen to what we've been able to discuss. We thank you for your servants, Abraham and Sarah, and that no matter the the journey, no matter the ups and the downs, that you are there in, in that walk and be there with our walk, Lord, that we may go through ups and downs in life, that you are always there and that we can put that trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Uh, Thank you, Lockie and Morgan, for joining us. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.